0: I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain.
1: We've all heard the saying that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it by George Santega. And it seems every day we are struggling to remember the lessons of the past. Speaking of the past, it's time once again for Josh's favorite, Old Timey Crimey. As race relations in the United States have once again come to a boil, it's time we look at the actual history of our area, not the one we were taught in school, and learn from the mistakes of the past and do what we can to correct them so we don't condemn ourselves. In the U.S., and especially in the Pacific Northwest, we are taught about the Native Americans that were in the area when pilgrims arrived. In elementary school, we had frontier days where we would put on a bonnet, pan for gold, wash our clothes on a washboard, and touch the pelts of the animals that were used for clothing. But we were never taught about the dark side of things, about how the white man destroyed not only families, but how small groups of religious missionaries could destroy entire tribes. Since the momentum of Black Lives Matter in the last year put the need to protect black lives in the forefront, it has also been an opportunity for Native persons to speak up and out about the injustices that they need to have heard. Not only the injustices of the generations past, but current ones. From COVID relief to freshwater availability, Native Americans are still treated as lesser Americans. For years, and especially more so recently, there have been talks of reparations for the Native Americans. Ideas from financial support to actually giving back the land to the rightful tribes have come to the table. While that is something I emotionally support, I don't know that people would ever be willing to actually do that. As a child, I never thought about the gruesome details involved in creating reservations. I'm sure deep down I knew that there was no way it was a good situation, and I was never forced to hear the details in school, so I didn't force myself to go there. While there are hundreds, if not thousands, of stories regarding those who fought to protect their land and those that were trying to take it, There's one particular massacre in Washington that left more than a dozen people slaughtered, started a seven-year war, and decimated an entire Native American tribe. This is the story of the Whitman Massacre of Wai'ilepu. It was 1831, so the story goes, that four indigenous men from the Pacific Northwest made their way to St. Louis, Missouri, to talk to colonizers about the religion. They had been exposed to the Bible via fur traders that had come to their land, and they had some questions. The questions weren't necessarily out of curiosity and hopes of becoming Christians, but they had taken note that the fur traders weren't as susceptible to the diseases and illnesses in the same way the tribespeople were. Being that Native Americans, especially at the end of the 19th century, were incredibly spiritual and curious about how spirits could help, they wanted to know more. Additionally, they were intrigued by the book itself and wanted to learn how to read and write and create things such as the Bible, so they went across the country to find out more. Word of their visit and potential conversion opportunity in the Pacific Northwest quickly spread. Their visit happened to coincide with the second great revival of religion in America. So to anyone that heard of the native men asking about the Bible, they heard not curiosity, but an opportunity to save their souls. Their visit was such a big deal, there was a story in the newspaper about it and how it was the duty of the churchgoer to take to the trail and to do God's work. Two people who were moved by the news were New York newlyweds Marcus and Narcissa Whitman, names that were eclipsed by Lewis and Clark, even though they were some of the first non-Native Americans to use the route that would be known as the Oregon Trail. Marcus Whitman was a 33-year-old doctor and hobbyist preacher. His wife, 28-year-old Narcissa, was his hype woman and supported his teachings. In fact, she had wanted to be a missionary since she was a teen, even though female missionaries were few and far between. So in 1836, five years before the Oregon Trail, the Whitmans set their sights west. They weren't alone in their wagon journey. They were joined by married couple Henry and Eliza Spaulding, along with William Gray. For part of the trip, they were accompanied by Miles Goodyear, a mountain man that would go on to found the town of Ogden, Utah. The group had their mission approved and were being sent by the Presbyterian Congregational and Dutch Reformed American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. What a catchy name. Narcissa and Eliza were true trailblazers in taking this journey. They were the first non-Native American women to cross the Rocky Mountains and to make it as far west as they did. The group's decision to make the pilgrimage across the country shows just how strongly they believed in what they were doing. They knew they would never see their friends or families again, that if they survived the initial journey, they would make a new life for themselves in the new country. Besides, if something went wrong, the odds of making it back across the country were not in their favor. It took the group seven grueling months to make their way to the land that would become Washington and Oregon. Before they got to their destination, the Spaldings and William Gray settled in an area that would later become Idaho. The Whitmans continued, excited and optimistic about what would lie before them. Once to the Walla Walla area, they set up the Wa'ileipu mission. They had made it and were eager to teach the Cayuse tribe the word of the Lord. The Cayuse were a tribe that was 8,000 members strong and had used the land of Walla Walla for nearly 10,000 years. They were a nomadic tribe following the food, water, and shelter of the area. Of course, the Whitman's teachings weren't the first time the Cayuse had heard anything religious or spiritual. They were already a deeply spiritual tribe. They believed the land and people were one and the same. The land was the most important, as was the practice of reciprocity. The land would give to the people. The people would give back to the land. The Whitmans also weren't the first or only Europeans in the area. Among their fellow white men were British and French trappers, traders, and other missionaries. Upon arrival, the Cayuse granted the Whitmans permission to settle on and use the land, which they did, building themselves a home and mission, a mission they would use for church and eventually medical care, a mission that would fulfill their personal mission to change the lives of the Cayuse tribe people through religion. While they were kind enough to get permission to set up their lives there, they weren't too worried about manners past that. They knew what they wanted to do to help, but they didn't bother to ask the tribespeople people how they could help them or what they needed from them. Marcus especially, since he was a doctor and all, felt he knew what was best for those he perceived as heathens. If you could ask Marcus Whitman now what he felt about the Native Americans, you'd see that white male toxicity is not a new concept. He'd probably say something like, I don't say they are heathens in a bad way, just that I'm educated and I know better. And since they're not educated, I'm just here to help. While they were being looked at as the lesser, the Native Americans didn't feel that way. They knew the people and concepts being presented to them were new and different. Therefore, they were interested in learning about and from them. It was like that expression if you ask a fish to climb a tree, you'd think it was stupid and incapable, when really it's just something it doesn't know how to do. The cayuse weren't stupid, they were being exposed to completely new ideas. Once the mission was set up and running, the cayuse people attended the sermons, some even getting baptized. But there were difficulties when it came to the Cayuse and the new religion. There were so many elements of what Marcus was teaching them that were completely new and foreign concepts. The idea of heaven and hell, that everyone was born a sinner. It was a negativity and intensity that they just hadn't used in their spiritual aspects before. On top of that, there were language and use of language barriers. For the Cayuse people, who had an oral culture, words weren't just words. They were powerful objects. So as Marcus preached, you're going to hell, it was easy for it to be misconstrued as, I personally am the one that will be sending you to hell. As the Whitmans settled into their new lives, they started their family. On March 14, 1837, Alice Clarissa Whitman was born. She was the first non-native child born on the land that would become Oregon. Sadly, at just over two years old, Alice would drown in the Walla Walla River. That would be the only Whitman child by birth, but not the only child they would raise. On their journey west, the Whitmans had met many trappers, hunters, and travelers. Those men remembered the Whitmans when they would have babies with Native American women. Through the years that followed, the Whitmans were given two-year-old Helen Mar Meeks, five-year-old Marianne Bridger, David Mallon, who was just under two years old, Marcus's 13-year-old nephew, Perrin Whitman. Then came the Sager children, all seven of them, the oldest being 13, the youngest just five months old, as her mother had died on the journey west. As the years went on, the frustration between the Cayuse people and the Whitmans grew more and more. Culturally, the Cayuse tribe was expecting reciprocation and gifts from the Whitmans. As they viewed the symbiotic relationship between themselves and the land, they expected to receive gifts from Marcus and Narcissa after giving them their land, food, and time. The Whitmans were annoyed that the Cayuse people weren't putting in more of an effort to change their ways. The Cayuse people were annoyed that the Whitmans expected more from them. They had seen the Whitman's teachings as something to add to their already robust spirituality, not something to replace what they already believed. After two years, the indigenous people were bored and stopped attending the church in the same numbers they had been. As time went on, word spread east about the bountiful land in the west. The Cayuse tribe watched in horror as a flood of whiteness took over their land. Marcus basically became the spokesperson for the immigrants, and informing the tribe that, yeah, we're going to claim this land now. Thanks. Five years after their arrival, the area went from a few hundred people arriving a year to a thousand new settlers just in 1843. And for anyone that played Oregon Trail back in the day, you know that new people meant new diseases and illnesses. These included dysentery, the flu, and whooping cough, none of which the Cayuse had been exposed to before. Since they had no immunity built up for these diseases, the tribe's people, especially the children, were dying at an alarming rate. Being a doctor, Marcus turned the mission into a makeshift medical facility where he treated both the white people and the Cayuse. In doing so, his rate of mortality after treating the white people was low, while the mortality rate for the Native Americans was exceptionally higher. This led to conversations amongst the tribe. Was the doctor poisoning them? As the children of the tribe continued to die, chiefs started to confront Marcus, suggesting he leave the area. Narcissa refused to heed the warnings. She knew they were there to do God's work, and she wanted Marcus to fight back. Marcus decided they would be staying put, and he left his trust in God. With the influx of people and word coming from the east from other tribes, word of diseases, the taking of lands, and decimation of tribes, chiefs in the area had a bad feeling, a feeling that the white man was only interested in the land and taking over the country, so they wondered what were Marcus's true intentions. With fears mounting, the chiefs once again approached Marcus. His mission was over. It was time for him to go home. But that wouldn't work for Marcus. As missionaries, if they had returned home, they would have been viewed as failures and would basically fall out of social standings. The warnings persisted. Get the hell off our land. The curiosity and interest that had first been piqued by the Whitmans had run its course. In 1847, nearly 5,000 people came on the Oregon Trail and settled in the area of the Whitmans and Cayuse. With that many people, the number of diseases was much higher than anything they had dealt with in the past. In the fall of that year, Marcus was treating 75 people in the mission, most of which were being treated for yet another new illness to strike the tribe, measles. By the time measles had hit the tribe, they were losing six people a day to it. The tribe soon withered down from thousands to only 500 members. By the end, half of them had been lost to measles. Just as before, Marcus was able to treat and save the white children, but the indigenous children were not so lucky. Since he had refused to listen to the requests and warnings of the chiefs, a meeting was held for the men to decide what to do with the doctor they felt that was doing more harm than good. While the deaths were upsetting to the tribe, there were still several people that had converted to Christianity and didn't want to see the Whitmans forced out. But the night of November twenty-eighth would, but the night of November twenty-eighth would cause a change in course. On that night, three Cayuse children died from the measles after Marcus couldn't save them. The Cayuse had had enough. Something had to be done to rid them of the man that had not only used their land but had brought the death and destruction carried out by the thousands of people that had followed him but a man that was now seen as a danger to the people and the children, a man that they felt was killing them off to make room for more white people, a man that over and over again refused their requests for him to just go home. On November 29, 1847, several men from the tribe went to the mission under the guise of needing medical treatment. Knocking on the kitchen door, they met with Marcus. Soon, the 75 people in the other part of the building could hear shouting. At the same time, the mission was surrounded by dozens of Cayuse men brandishing rifles, hatchets, and tomahawks. They killed any men or boys that were outside before making their way towards the building. They were seeking their revenge for the death of their children, the continued loss of land, life, and Marcus's refusal to leave. Marcus met his demise by being beaten, shot in the neck, and hit in the back of the head with a hatchet. It was later reported that he not only didn't die right away, but was so badly hatcheted to the face, his features were not recognizable. As the others heard the gunshot, chaos ensued, for as they started to flee, the men surrounding the mission started breaking through the doors and windows. As people who were there to get treatment for their ailments started to frantically try to escape, the men started their attack. During the attack, Narcissa was shot and killed. The exact final number of lives lost that day is not known, but it's estimated that between 12 to 13 people were killed at the mission, two of which were the eldest Sager children. As for the 50-ish survivors, they were taken hostage. Several of the hostages died while in captivity, including two of the other Whitman children, Helen and Mary, both dying of the measles. Most of the deaths that occurred while being held hostage were from illness and elements. But you may ask, how could there have been so many deaths? Well, because those that were held against their will, they were held for over a month. It took a ransom, including money, tobacco and weapons being paid by the Hudson Bay Company to get the survivors home. The massacre obviously became national news, wherein the men were called savages. Soon after the deaths at Wai'ilepu Mission, a bill was passed which allowed for a 500-man militia to make their way west to find the killers. An 8,000-person tribe that had never been celebrated for their hunting skills, horsemanship, or warriorship had been destroyed by illnesses as their land was being taken and their people were turned into a target, a target of both death and racism. Using the excuse of seeking justice for the attack, the militia began raiding tribes in the area. When the raids began, the chiefs tried to explain the reasoning for the massacre, but it wouldn't be heard. Not only were the whites outraged by the attack, but they knew what the Native Americans knew, that this was the perfect excuse to continue to take land. Politicians were now involved, threatening the Cayuse, telling them to turn over the guilty or their people would continue to die because they couldn't tell the difference between someone that had committed the massacre and someone that hadn't. In hopes of taking pressure off their tribe, five men, including Tilo Kalkit, the leader of the Cayuse tribe, and Tomahas, both of which had been present at the mission, turned themselves into authorities. While those two were guilty in the eyes of the law, it is unknown how or why the other three men were chosen, perhaps through a council, perhaps they volunteered. Either way, they knew lives of their own men would have to be lost to appease the white man. The men were arrested and taken to jail in Oregon City. They went to trial, were found guilty, and in June of 1848, their sentences of death were carried out via hanging. The executioner was the now Marshal Joe Meek, the father of Helen Meek the child he had given to the Whitmans who had died from measles while being held hostage. Before he was hanged, Tilo Kaiket reminded those watching what had started all of this by shouting out, Did not your missionaries teach us that Christ died to save his people? So we die to save our people. This, of course, was a tipping point for the white-indigenous relationships. The tension was high, and the concern the Cayuse had regarding the white man's desire to take their land was validated as the colonizers flooded into their area. For seven years, wars raged in the region. Granted, not wars like what we picture, due to supplies and the era, but wars that pitted tribes against colonizers, man against man— More and more, white travelers came across the country and continued to use the Whitmans as the reason for taking land, even if it meant a fight. In May of 1855, the U.S. government met with tribal leaders in the area where they signed a treaty for the land. The government claimed that there were only a couple hundred people left in a few tribes, so they should all just be put on land together, while the tribes argued their numbers were much higher than what was being presented. They also asked that the land be purchased from them, then they could be giving the land to settlers, allowing them to not only gain financially, but to have control of how much land they sold. We, of course, know how that went. The government pleaded with the tribes to find land they wanted to settle on before being forced onto a reservation, but they were rightfully unwilling to give it up. The final treaty barely met the desires of the Cayuses, Umatillas, and Walla Walla tribes, those that had been brought together on the council due to their proximity with one another. They gave up over 4 million acres of land. They asked to retain 512,000 acres, hunting and fishing rights to the land, gifts in the future, and a payment of $150,000, or what would be $4 million in today's money. Even though that was the deal that was signed, it, of course, wasn't what the tribes would get. The final acreage was only about 254000 part of which had the town of Pendleton on it. In 1874, the Oregon legislature was upset that the tribe's people were merely living, hunting, fishing, and feeding their horses on the land, not using it for farming, so they wanted the tribes moved. An editorial said they found it a burning shame to keep this fine body of land for a few worthless Indians. As acts and laws were changed to benefit the government, they caused more and more harm to the tribes. In 1887, the Dawes Act was passed, which divided the reservations even further by giving land to individuals, not the entire reservation, allowing for more of the land to be bought by settlers. By 1949, the remaining members of the three tribes voted to create a single tribal government called the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. They used their new governmental power to sue the United States government for the land they had taken and the land they were damaging. Through the years, they reached settlements of millions of dollars, but that didn't restore their land or people. For 10,000 years, the Cayuse tribe lived on and cared for six million acres throughout what would become Oregon and Washington. Today, there are no 100% Cayuse-blooded tribal members. Their language and lineage is all but extinct. Sharing the land with their tribal neighbors, the Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Wallas are on 172,882 acres, almost half of which is owned by non-Native American people. In Walla Walla, there is a national park site at the location of the massacre. But what would you see or feel while there? Would you sympathize with those that lost their lives at the hands of men that were out for revenge? Or would you side with those men who, in their eyes, were only protecting their land and people? No one deserves to have a hatchet to the head. No group of sick women and children deserve to be hunted down or kidnapped. So what is the balance between placing responsibility on the Whitmans for not heeding the warnings of the tribal leaders while also holding the indigenous men responsible for the vicious murders? The emotions surrounding these murders are tricky— On one hand, you had men, women, and children brutally slaughtered with hatchets and survivors taken hostage, where more died even more horrifically. So it's easy to say the tribal members were in the wrong and deserved punishment. On the other hand, well, put yourself in the shoes of the Cayuse. They were just living their lives on their land, peacefully and happily. Suddenly, a man who doesn't speak their language forces his own upon them, teaches them a religion they didn't ask for, then brings more people. People that bring diseases that kill almost all their children. And when you ask him to leave, warn him that he should leave, and threaten him should he not leave, and he still doesn't, well, it's hard to blame them for taking such harsh action. The story of the Whitman Massacre has always been just that the Whitmans. The memorial is named after them, it's located on a road named after them. It's hard to feel the sorrow that seems almost expected by that when it feels more like it's propaganda, keeping the view of the Native Americans as savages as opposed to defenders of their home and people.
0: Such an eye roll, my goodness. I loathe this idea of this pedestal that certain religions or people will put themselves on and not even for a minute try to empathize with the the savages or the people less fortunate who haven't embraced it. It's just so egocentric awful. I hate it. And so, yeah, I empathize with the Native Americans like they warned them. They told them, how dare you walk into some habited area and assume it's up for the taking Um, I don't agree with the the hostage taking and killing of children, but I absolutely think they were in the right. Like, okay, I don't condone war like that sucks. But what else are you going to do? You're at a disadvantage. You don't have the same weapons. You don't you know, there's more white people coming. Like, it's just so freaking frustrating. And when you lay out the amount of land, like it really puts it into perspective. Like we literally stole everything. Right. It's horrible. Right. I just get really worked up. And I, I remember not even learning about this type of stuff. Never. Until way late in high school when I actively did it myself. I would go to college talks and learn about this stuff because you don't learn it in school. Or maybe you do now. I don't know. I always say that. That I've... I never heard it. This
1: is... I could take a day and drive to this memorial and drive back. Mm-hmm. It would be a day trip.
0: Yeah. The only reason I know is I got really into Native American studies oh, in right. college, too. So it's... But yeah, it's just... It's not...
1: Presented when you're younger to because understand. Because we are white
0: centric. Yeah. As a society, like we are white people. I get it. Like we have to. It's sad that we have to actively seek out this information to like better our own education mm-hmm. on these topics.
1: Because it's protecting. Because if everyone knew everything, it would be really hard to be like, yeah, I'm going to stay on this land well, <laughs> or about, I'm not going to. We're not going to vote to give you money like so
0: that you can develop Elizabeth Elizabeth Batori, OK. Mm-hmm. And no, it's not Batory. everyone. Who is this? This is just a historic figure that was villainized. So it's this woman who, uh, the story goes, she's like bathed in young women's blood and she killed all her servants and every, women would disappear. It's all propaganda like this. There is no proof of it. They did not find remains of hundreds of women on her property. It was
1: the original QAnon.
0: Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> it was basically she had, a uh, I think, a cousin who didn't want her to go into power and run a country. So they started spreading rumors. And it's powerful because to this day. All you hear about is the vamp- how vampiric she was and how, you know, she got boarded up in a tower for all of her crimes. But maybe she was just this badass woman leader who had some really gnarly lies spread about her. And, and that just goes to show how easy it is to perpetuate an idea of history.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and... And then you, if you backtrack, like my, you know, my dad has always said, just follow the money. That'll answer. If I ever, you know, growing up, if I'm watching the news, well, why would they do that? He'd go follow the money. So let's go back, and you know, you go back, you go back. So that Protestant International World Council of Mega Church, whatever they were called, that sent them. How many of those guys were just wanting land? And they're like, oh yeah, send those missionaries out, exactly. And so I the missionaries are just stuck in this position because they, you know, like I said, since she was very young narcissa was i'm going to be a missionary and so this was a dream for her to be able to do this what what was the real motive behind those guys going yeah go do that was it really the the word of
0: god people take advantage of what you don't know and i'm not ever gonna say like all christians are bad or all people are bad it's just like take a minute to educate yourself on why you want to do something and why somebody's supporting you in doing it and maybe there's more to the story because it really is just like naivety they' mm-hmm. they were naive people who wanted to spread the word of god and that in itself is not bad they thought they were being good people but it's this idea that you're better than other people because yeah. you have that it's just yeah unfair. they looked and they're
1: like oh look at our clothes and our houses and whatever it's so much better and it's like no they're doing just fine just because it doesn't look how you expect it to look or you think like oh these poor people that don't have mm-hmm. no they're they're okay Just because it doesn't look the same. And it's that lack of curiosity that gets me. Yeah. And so it blows my mind to think we're going to trap. We're literally on the other side of the world from where we started. And we're not going to talk to you guys about what you have. We don't want to hear. And that's sad. And that this whole, you know, this whole tribe was like. Well, yeah, we'll hear we want to. There's no fear. You're just showing up and they're not like scared off. They're going, wow, this is all different, new and interesting. Let's hear about it and go. But you guys can't sit and go, oh, this is. Oh, interesting. And you believe the land has this. And, the you know, it's like, Mm. oh, wow. okay." And we could maybe have a really bomb ass American religion if they had done that.
0: Yeah, I guess the thing I hope people take away because, you know, we all think, oh, this will never happen again. But it's like this shit does happen yeah. all the time. Like it's just white men. Yeah, man.
1: And that's why we're not taught it, because if we were taught this in high school, even when you first are really kind of getting your own ideas and and learning more and more about the the world, you know, the world's getting bigger for you when you're in high school, if you're learning about that yeah you're gonna end up with an entire uh, generation that's
0: changing the way they teach Chloe has... you're gonna be pissed Chloe comes home with a lot of knowledge about Good. what's happened to Native Americans because they teachers are actively investing Good. in that and I don't know if it's like in the normal curriculum or if they're just doing it but I appreciate that and she asks me really hard questions about that stuff and it's like yeah I want you to know <laughs>
1: While researching for this story, I heard the pilgrims, white men, pioneers, whatever you want to call them, referred to as immigrants, which was a name I would place on those folks that landed at Ellis Island, but I had never really thought of it as a name for the people that were making their way across what would be the U.S., but they were. They were immigrants searching for a better future for themselves, and in this case, for others. But immigrant is used in such a negative way now, usually by angry white guys that won't let them come take their jobs. I've never felt that way about immigrants from other countries. I just thought they wanted better for themselves and their families. But perhaps those angry white guys are so suspicious because they know differently. They know that their own ancestors were capable of forcing a religion on others, capable of walking onto another man's land, into their home, and trying to force them to change their lifestyles, that they were willing to bring with them illnesses that could wipe out entire groups of people without thinking twice. They've taken the horrors of their great-great-grandfather's actions and put them on other immigrants. All of these events—the first arrival of white men to the West, the destruction of the people and land, the forcing the tribes onto reservations—was just shy of 200 years ago. For context, it was two years after the Tribal Council was formed to fight back against the government that I Love Lucy first aired. These events are of a not-very-distant past. Before the colonizers arrived, the Native Americans had a prophecy that said new people would come and bring challenging changes to the Cayuse. Sadly, the prophecy was right. Since then, the Native Americans across the Pacific Northwest and the rest of the country have fought for their rights. The rights to their lands, the rights to their health, the right to exist. With disproportionate incarceration rates, homicide rates, and suicide rates, they are right to fight. And there is a lot of fight left in order to give the remaining tribal members the land and lives they deserve. <laughs> My internal timer is. To the second.
0: That's creepy.
1: I can set a timer or maybe I'm cooking something or something's in the oven. And I have the timer going. Ooh, my pants arrived today. Ca- <laughs> Additionally, they were intrigued by the book itself
0: and wanted to. I just made a weird kissy sound. <laughs> maybe it was after I broke up with Isaac. So I had gone to Oregon State and you guys were all still here. And I came back for a pajama party. Oh, pajama jammy jam. Ali Peratt Armstrong,
1: Scott McCord, Mo Gaffney. Mm. I don't know any of them. John Anderson, James B. Binkley Joe Bostick. Mr. Joe Bostick. I, f- <laughs> I, f- I have an oral culture if you know how <laughs> it. <mean. laughs>
0: Get back in there. <laughs> Dig it. <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> As they viewed the symbiotic relationship. You got symbiotic, right? <laughs> And then I just tripped on my own <laughs> stupid fucking mouth. Gosh, dang it. It's them big juicy lips. Thank y'all. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at k-y-f-i-f-e-r dot com.